My fellow dorks, with your permission, I have encountered a virgence in the podcast. A virgence, you say? Located around a person? No, an episode. Its cells have the highest concentration of midichlorians I have seen in any audio form podcast. It is possible it was conceived by the midichlorians. You refer to the prophecy of the one that will bring balance to the podcast. You believe it's this episode? I guess we'll have to find out. And with that, let us welcome you to the latest installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. I am Supreme Chancellor Jordan Freemuth, and I will be serving as moderator tonight. That is until someone moves for a vote of no confidence in my leadership. Joining me, as always, are the other representatives from the Galactic Republic of Dorks. Uh, first up, let me introduce the senator from Jersey City, Dan Freemuth. Dan, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where we like to have something witty to say based on the movies or subject we're about to talk about. I don't have that. The force is not strong with this one as it is not strong with these films. There's, there's always the next podcast. Uh, we are also joined by an especially dangerous Doug, uh, Gabe Freemuth. Gabe, how are we doing? Yoka to Bantapoodoo. That's all I got for you. Yeah, uh, you don't want any of that, uh, the, the, the slimy, um, like, chicken-looking thing that, that Jar Jar tries to eat and then ends up, like, shooting across at Sebulba? No, he wasn't wearing a mask. I'm supposed to eat that after he's done with it? After... No, no thanks. And it's, and it's in the sand, yeah. Uh, and last but not least, a special guest from the Jedi Door Council, Master Josh Freeman. Josh, how we doing? Let's be mindful of the living force, my Padawans. And it's true that if there are, if there's any Padawan for Dorkfest, the podcast, it's certainly not Josh. Uh, now, before we commence for this evening's episode, I just want to remind our listeners to please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Uh, we appreciate all of your support a great deal. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And please also follow and connect with us on Instagram. You can find us at Dorkfest underscore podcast. We'd love to hear from you there. Two weeks ago, we analyzed a favorite star trilogy of ours, and this time around, we will be revisiting another trilogy from a beloved star franchise, though I can't imagine any of us, nor many of our listeners, would call these three films their favorites. We'll trade out our Starfleet uniforms for Jedi robes, battle some droid armies, try to track down perhaps the only headless Mandalorian in the universe, and hopefully find some time to romp around in the lake country of Naboo. That's right, we will be taking a look at the Star Wars prequels, Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. As these movies almost single-handedly tanked one of the greatest franchises of all times, it would be easy enough to just make fun of them for a full 60 minutes. But like young Anakin Skywalker, we all wouldn't have lasted so long in this dork business if we weren't good at fixing things. So tonight, we will endeavor to do just that. We'll discuss the redeemable aspects of these films, dive deep into the many mistakes they made, and ultimately try to fix what went wrong with them. Before beginning, though, it is our tradition to begin each podcast with a warm-up question. And in planning for tonight's episode, I was reminded of the Star Wars Episode One Racer video game that Dan, Josh, and I used to play. Gabe, I can't remember. Did you ever, did you ever play that in, in any of your visits to Three Marlin? I did indeed. Uh, it may have only been the once, but it's a game I have some familiarity with. Yeah, great game. It's a great game, may in fact be the best thing to have come out of the prequels, but that's something that we'll no doubt be discussing tonight. Now, I remember the starter racers included the likes of Anakin, Dudbolt, and one of my personal favorites, Odie Mandrell, um, along with his record-setting uh, pit droid team. 
But there were also a number of unlockable characters, Sebulba, Rats Tyrell, and Ben Quadraneros, just to name a few. It's basically the Star Wars version of Mario Kart. And that got me thinking, what would Padres look like if it included characters from some of our other favorite franchises? So dorks, for tonight's warm-up question, I have compiled a list of five different racers to complete in our Dorkfest Padres. And I want to know who you got. Now, as Anakin points out, he is the only human who can do this. So all of the racers are non-humanoid life forms. The competitors are, from the Star Trek universe, Q. From Middle Earth, Bilbo Baggins. From the Marvel universe, Thanos. From the Transformers franchise, Starscream. And last but not least, and perhaps my personal favorite, the Velociraptor from the first Jurassic Park movie. Now, I just so happen to have a chance cube here, so I will roll that to see who goes first. Gabe, it appears that you're up. Thank you for that, because I'm just going to come right out of the gate and pick the obvious winning choice. You have to pick Q in a, in a pod race. I mean, one way or another, he's getting over the finish line, and you might never see the rest of those pods and their respective racers again. He's just going to storm out on, you know, some inner planet in the nebula somewhere. He'll forget about him for a couple hundred years. And then when he remembers, he'll snap him back to their time. But he'll still have won the race. So despite, I'm going to have to pull a Sebulba here. And as much as I would love to support Bilbo in uh, what I'm certain could end up being a very close come from behind uh, victory, you know, ring or no, it won't be because I'm going to be staking Q in his race. And he's just going to bend space and time and race circles around the rest of y'all. <laughs> A safe pick, uh, though the one that you would hope that your father doesn't hear about, considering, as you said, you didn't take Bilbo Baggins. Uh, Josh, next up, who you got? I'm going with the big one. I'm going with the with the raptor from uh, from Jurassic Park. Um, Cheetah's speed, I bet, uh, 50, 60 miles an hour. Muldoon estimated if if she ever got out into the open. I mean, this is a creature with problem-solving intelligence, uh, retractable claws. She knows how to open doors. I, I, think, I think she'll take to pod racing just as quickly as she took to taking out that poor little gatekeeper. Oh, uh, the poor gatekeeper. Well, R.I.P. gatekeeper. <laughs> and, and not a bad choice, too. You know, it, it's arguable that the Velociraptor, that she wouldn't even need a, a, a pod, wouldn't even need a... Whatever you call those things. Well, I, I, no, I'm not, I wouldn't go that far. If, if Anakin is the only human who can race a pod, then I think we're looking at going at, at least like 300 miles an hour, somewhere in that range. You know, like, like a race cars even now get up in the 200s at times. So. I think so, for Anakin to be that exceptional, I think we have to be well north even of that figure. Yeah, so the Raptor would need some extra juice. Now, that was a, it was a tempting selection for me as well. Um, I am going to instead, for my selection, I am going to go with Starscream, mostly just because I think it would be great to see him just kind of freak out the whole time. Um, no doubt he would probably try to take over Megatron's pod at some point because he was always trying to to take over control of the Decepticons. Uh, Starscream would be my selection. He would no doubt lose even though he had this great plot for how he would win, but Starscream would be my selection. Dan, why don't you take us home? 
It's interesting that you pick Starscream because that is kind of the direction that I was going to go in terms of laying my money down uh, for backing purposes. I thought Starscream was the great choice because whichever way the wind is blowing, that's the direction that Starscream's going. And he is not above cheating and stealing his way to victory. And getting back to the Velociraptor conversation, I think, yeah, if, if Starscream's pod you know, laid an egg on him, then he could just transform into a jet and zoom across the finish line. So I think there's there's some options there. But of the two remaining choices, Thanos and Bilbo Baggins, boy, we really have the two separate ends of the spectrum. And I am going to go with the little guy from Middle Earth. I'm taking Bilbo Baggins. He is so cunning and he's got the one ring to rule them all. If Bilbo Baggins can get the ring to Mordor. All those trials and tribulations that thwarted so many others, then I'd like to think he could win a couple of laps around, you know, Bunta Eve or whatever it is. So my money is on Bilbo Baggins. Plus, we already saw a little humanoid character win the pod race in Anakin. So basically just Anakin 2.0. Dan, excellent analysis. Although I do have to say that I think that you may have misinterpreted Bilbo Baggins for Frodo Baggins. Now, I think that you are correct. Bilbo Baggins, of course, being the one who had to steal the the ring from Gollum and then also defeat Smog the dragon. Uh, But I I think that you're absolutely right in terms of his deceptive ability. You are 100% that I botched those characters. Yes, that is factually (laughs) accurate that I said Bilbo Baggins and the whole time informing my argument was thinking Frodo Baggins. So we're, we're off to a real solid start for me. Didn't come with an opening a quippy line. Botch the difference between Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins. Basically, my performance so far, though, this is good, because my performance so far is completely on par with the three movies we're about to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. You are channeling Lucas right now more than anybody else in this pod. Now this is podcasting. <laughs> So as you no doubt know by now, based not only on the introduction that I provided, but also the varying performances provided thus far, we are going to be talking about the Star Wars prequels tonight. And we're just going to jump right in there. We're going to jump right in there with our one-point question. And as I said in the introduction, it would be easy enough to make fun of these movies for 60 minutes, and we probably still will end up doing that. But there are some redeemable aspects of these movies. Not redeemable enough to make them redeemable films, but redeemable nonetheless. So for question number one, and I'm going to be going to Dan for this one to see if he can maybe, you know, make up some of that ground. Question number one, one point question. Dan, what do you think the Star Wars prequels get right? All right, now, just so I'm clear, with the prequels, we're talking about the Ice Planet of Hoth and the movie with the Ewoks, right? Yeah, and then Solo, a Star Wars story. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, good. No, okay. Uh, All all kidding aside, um, you're right, Jordy. First and foremost, these movies get a couple of things right. Um, And a couple of things over six hours, six plus hours, is not a tremendous hit rate, but they do get a few things right. I guess I'm going to start with two separate but connected items. Number one is Darth Maul. As a villain, as an aesthetic, as a character, man, 
really cool. He's got that tremendous uh, entrance when the doors split open and he's got that, I mean, it, that's got movie trailer moment written all over it with the double bladed lightsaber. I mean, it was just, just a super cool character design, just a really cool aesthetic to him. And then on top of that, what he, what his character then affords that movie to do, Phantom Menace, and then in subsequent films, is provide us with lightsaber battles that we had never seen to this point. Remember how in A New Hope, we get this incredible duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, our first introduction into lightsaber duels. And looking back on it, I mean, it's pretty lame. It's a couple of whacks with the broomstick, and then Obi-Wan gives up. By the end in Return of the Jedi, yes, Luke and Vader are, are you know, going at each other pretty good, but that pales in comparison to what Qui-Gon Jinn and, and Obi-Wan are able to navigate with Darth Maul. The double-bladed saber opens up a whole host of different stunt opportunities, and I believe I'm correct that all those guys did their own stunt work. I know that that's the case for Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor when it comes to uh, the Battle of the Heroes in Revenge of the Sith. So these guys put the work in. It shows those sequences were not sped up. Those are filmed in real time. Uh, and it opened up some really cool looking lightsaber battles, uh, the likes of which we had never ever seen before. Now, unfortunately, getting back to my Darth Maul point, they kill off this really cool character basically immediately, which is disappointing. And then the cool lightsaber battles, in my opinion, do go a bit too far. Um, CGI Yoda with a lightsaber, like it's cool in that moment when Yoda pulls back his cloak and wields his lightsaber off his back. Like I remember cheering for that in the movie theaters, but then it kind of goes a little screwball with all the CGI. Um, there are some CGI moments where uh, Palpatine twirls through the air with his, his sort of spiraling saber. That's a bit too much for me as well. But I'm thinking the battle, the duel of the fates battle between Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul, and then the battle of the heroes moment between uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan. Just tremendously cool lightsaber battles, and the likes of which we had not yet seen um, in the original Star Wars trilogy. I think the action scenes are broadly speaking are something that all three of these movies get, get pretty right that they do well, Jay. Um, duel of the fates is, is an, is an iconic lightsaber duel uh, due in no small part to the, to, to the theme by, by John Williams. He's another one of the great parts of these trilogies. He does some great work in these, in these, in these three movies, but, I, I really love the um, the whole action sequence on Geonosis once Obi-Wan Kenobi g comes into the equation. There's the bit with Anakin and Padme in a sort of like, um, it, it looked like an action scene from one of the like Super Nintendo Star Wars video games back from probably the late 90s. Um, that one's not so good. But then, like, in the arena with those three against those creatures, I think that's fun, and it doesn't go on too long. And then you get 
this giant Jedi battle, which again, Dan, like you said, we've never seen that many lightsabers at one time before. That was really cool, watching all these Jedi take on so many foes at once. And then Yoda riding to the rescue in, in, in the clone gunship. It, it, and that ensuing battle is really cool. And yeah, I, I never, I even to right now, I don't mind CGI Yoda bouncing around like a Mexican jumping bean. I, I think it's like you, Dan, I thought it was really cool in the movie theater cheered when we saw it uh, j just last week rewatching clones. I, I, I still think that's a cool moment for Yoda where we finally get to see him wield that lightsaber in, I mean, period, but it, really like like an expert and they do reference earlier in the movie that like anakin has only to surpass master yoda as a swordsman like they, they set him up as this great swordsman so i think it was really cool that we got to see it because we're talking about all the stuff that the prequels get right i'm going to agree with you here and then i'm going to contradict myself in you know 25 minutes or whatever it is but i'm going to start here because yeah that first moment when yoda force pulls the lightsaber off his belt after what I agree with you guys, the, the fight on Geonosis, that whole sequence, basically from the moment Mace Windu walks out and this party's over to the point of, at which they start fighting with Dooku is, that's basically the, almost the high point of the prequels in a way. That's all the, that's solid action. It's adventure. It's a lot of world building. The scale's pretty cool. Yeah. That moment you see all the lightsabers light up around the arena and um, the, the whole sequence works. And when you get to CGI Yoda, yeah, that moment is really exciting. And then, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm really trying hard not to go the negative route here. All, this, all that to say is it's great to see Yoda fight this first time. It really levels him with the rest of the Jedi. You start to get a sense of the power, you know, and this is after you just watched him absorb force lightning, which is, you know, that's a super cool thing that we've never seen any other Jedi do before. You know, Christopher Lee's uh, Count Dooku is there. He's trying to bring the ceiling down on him. He's trying to hit him with machinery. And then, you know, Yoda pulls this one out of it. Much to learn, you still have. And it's like, I, you know, it's cool. You get a real sense of the power of Yoda in that moment. And it has to be said that a lot of the, and again, I'm going to say this now, so uh, prepare for me to contradict myself later. A lot of the effects work here, a lot of the design, all this stuff lays the groundwork for a lot of other technological innovations that, you know, enable a lot of movies we like after this. Um, as, much, as much as we might champion or deride some of the work done here, a lot of what we love after this really, you know, couldn't have been possible without Lucasfilm and ILM doing their the usual, their usual magic. I do think uh, another thing while we're talking about the positives of, of the prequels is what the warm up question was. If we're talking about sequences that really work in these films, uh, the pod racing is that was an instant classic. I mean, yeah, it's Ben Hur in space, but Star Wars is so many things in space, and it's an exciting sequence. The sound design is top notch. And it's exciting. That That's a high point, maybe again, the high point of, of episode one. There's that real sense of, of adventure that you get from the previous films. And Phantom Menace probably is uh, closest cousin to the feel of the original trilogy. Um, but that pod racing scene really sticks out. Houtini! Uh, Gabe, I love that you bring that up. And uh, Josh, I also love that you give that little sound reference there too, because it goes to something that I'm going to talk about here in a moment. But I think, you know, Gabe, you said that the pod racing sequence is, is the standout scene in Phantom Menace. I, I would argue that it might be the standout scene in the entire prequel trilogy. Now, granted, that might not be saying a whole lot, as we'll get to not too much later from now, 
Uh, but I do think there's an argument to be made there. Um, and part of what I loved about the pod racing sequence when I went back and watched recently was that it was a nice mix between the world building that's such a central component to Star Wars and then also some homages to whether it be aliens or creatures or in the case of Jabba the Hutt, characters that we've seen before. But you got the sense that this was something that like has always existed in this arena, both in the physical arena, but then also the arena in the universe of Star Wars. But it's something that we had never seen. So it was this sort of, you know, unique peek into the Star Wars universe that we hadn't necessarily seen before, while still being grounded quite literally in a place, Tatooine, that we have been grounded in before. You know, Gabe, you were also talking about, or Josh, going back to what you were saying, with some of the great battle sequences, the opening battle sequence of Sith, I think is definitely up there as well. In terms of space battle, the scale of that is especially impressive. Rewatching awesome. that one today, though, I felt like it went on just a bit too long. And that might be more so a problem that I have in general with General Grievous, uh, but that's something that we'll get to in a little bit later. But again, in the general scale of that, and that also goes to another thing that I want to talk about briefly, which is the, the general ship design. Um, and then also the design of certain droids and different um, machinery that we see throughout the prequels that I think are really cool. A couple of standouts that I have found, uh, the destroyer droids, I think are a really, really cool design. Uh, the droid tanks from episode one, I think are really, really cool. The, the clone gunship that Josh referenced earlier that Yoda's driving, that, that Yoda's riding on, I think it's a very cool design, purposeful, but then also just very cool in terms of what it can do in battle. And then lastly, the clone army ships that you see at the beginning of Sith, you have the obvious ships that are clearly going to become Star Destroyers, but then you also have the interesting mix between ships that are going to become X-Wings and also ships that are going to become TIE Fighters. Um, so just, you know, some cool ship design there that I think is one thing that the prequels do get right. I think you make a really good point there, Jordy, because they did do a nice job from a design standpoint of, of using echoes of elements that would come later and in some of those designs we see oh okay right that's going to become an x-wing and that's going to become a star destroyer without hitting you over the head with just obvious you know duplications of those of those items i also think as you guys um you know talk about the battle on geonosis and, and being able to see all those jedi in action that was a part of the of the prequels that was really neat was to see the Jedi in their heyday. I mean, previously we had seen, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and we had seen Luke and Vader and, and that was really about it. Now all of a sudden we're getting insight into the Jedi Council and how that works and varying degrees of Jedis. Qui-Gon Jinn is an interesting character because he's not your by-the-book you know, Jedi master. He kind of disagrees with the Council a little bit. He wants to you know, he believes that Anakin is the chosen one. They disagree. And so all of a sudden there's, there's some tension there. So I thought that made for some, some pretty neat scenes, maybe more neat potential than neat actual payoff. Um, but that's, that's a whole different can of worms. But at least being able to, you know, be in the Jedi Council, be at the Jedi Temple, see some of the, the background of how their operations all went. Uh, and, and then the last thing in terms of positives that, that I'll say on my end, Josh already alluded to, uh, John Williams turns in another just stellar performance. Duel of the Fates is, 
and this is this is quite the hot take, but I mean, it might be the most iconic piece of Star Wars music ever. Probably not behind the Imperial March and the main Star Wars theme, but I mean, Duel of the Fates 20 years later is, is still just as powerful as ever. The Battle of the Heroes theme is really good. I think some of the music that Williams pulls out when Anakin begins his shift toward the dark side is very, very good. And I think Attack of the Clones on the whole is not very good and it's weighed down largely by the, the really just disingenuous uh, quote unquote love relationship between Anakin and Padme, but that love theme from Attack of the Clones is actually also pretty good. So I, I think Williams, not that we would expect anything less, but I think he steps up and, and delivers a number of memorable themes that are in line with all the memorable themes from the original trilogy. It's been said, I'll say it again, Williams is far and away the best part taken as a whole of the prequel trilogy. I mean, he showed up to do work and what he delivered really is the promise i think of what those movies could have been i know this is the again the positive thing but um and it is it's it's so good that moment yeah when they first enter the coliseum and that sweeping love theme plays and clones is great the there's a really eerie and very unwilliams like moment in uh revenge of the sith when um anakin is told to wait as mace windu and a few other jedi knights go to get sidious and there's almost sort of a weird force connection is he's thinking about them and he's thinking about Padme and it's very quiet and there's no dialogue and the cinematography is really nice. I mean, that, that's a, again, in those moments, the prequel trilogy can soar on some of these moments and as often as not, it's on William's back. And to touch on what you were saying, Dan, about the, the Jedi council, it is really cool to see them in, in what is ultimately, it's sort of the final glory of Rome, right? I mean, it's just before the fall. They are as, you know, they've been established for a thousand years. They'll be established for a thousand more at this point. Um, the universe, you know, as we first enter it, this galaxy works, you know, again, with a nod to the design of the world building, uh, Jordan, which again, I think, um, yeah, not only are there great little clues scattered around in here that as much as, you know, it is all CGI stuff, the concepts behind like the Camino design, whether it's the aliens or the, the sort of uh, near Apple store-like futuristic tech texture of them, um, you know, it's yet again a, a single biome planet. It's a water world. It's really interesting that when are we ever going to find a Star Wars world that is more than one thing? It has yet to be found. But again, all these, I've always been a fan actually while we're talking ships of the Jedi Starfighter. That's it. And it kind of has no, it just looks like a smaller uh, Star Destroyer, I guess, but it's a neat aerodynamic little wedge design. Um, and that's an exciting scene uh, too while we're talking about things that work is uh, uh, the sort of Detective Obi-Wan sequence. Um, that involves also Jango Fett, which is another highlight of, uh, of the prequels. Um, we got to get nitty gritty into characters now as we're starting to reach the, we're reaching about halfway on the bottom of the barrel on the good stuff about the prequels. But yeah, um, Ewan McGregor is Obi-Wan in general, but also that, that sequence of Detective Obi-Wan, Jango Fett, that's all really fun stuff. I'm really glad you brought up Camino, Gabe, because I, I, I like every bit of that, starting with Obi-Wan going to the, the diner to meet his, you know, his contact buddy um, who will identify the dart and that's how he gets there. And then, yeah, the detective work trying to find out where this star system is. Um, but then the, the battle between Obi-Wan and Jango Fett is terrific. And that's actually where we first get to see all of that Mandalorian technology in use, you, you know, Boba Fett eats it pretty quickly in Return of the Jedi. And as cool as he looks, we didn't really get to see him do very much. 
that was one of the highlights for Attack of the Clones when we first saw it. That's maybe a little dulled now because we've seen it in The Mandalorian. But then that battle between them also extends into this little asteroid field chase between Obi-Wan in the Jedi Starfighter and... Um, and Django in the, the Slave One. We get to see the Slave One at, with its guns and those uh, proximity mines and the, the, and the missiles. And, um, you know, th th that was tremendously cool seeing that. And I, I that whole sequence be between, between those two I, is, is terrific in Clones. It's a cool uh, back and forth. Um, they sort of get, that's an extended sequence. I mean, two again. You know, we're going to be deriding it later, so I'll, I'll laud it while I can. Um, it does make use of these sort of extended sequences. It's not even just scenes. I mean, the uh, the chase after yeah, that sort of uh, the the insect plot to the you know whatever that poisonous worm to assassinate Amidala. That's a long chase. Keep and then you know there's a foot chase involved. And yeah, with this one, there's the fight on the platform. There's the first space battle, and then there's Obi Wan avoiding Jango Fed much in the same way uh, it was sort of retconned in later as confirmed that um, Boba Fett captured the Millennium or caught the Millennium Falcon hiding on the back of uh, the ejected trash of the Star Destroyer and Empire. So again, yeah, nice nostalgic nods. And, and you brought up the guns and the, the sonic disruptor mine. Oh man, I remember that moment in the theaters. That Again, great sound design from Ben Burke. When that thing goes off, it sounds shattering. Um, and the high pitch sort of repeating guns that it's got it. Yeah. It's just top notch. The stuff. little like delay on the, on, on the mine noise. I thought it, was it terrific. Goes dead silent for a second. No sounds at all. And then boom. Awesome. Another sound design piece that I want to bring up. You touched on it briefly, Gabe was, is the sound of Sebulba's pod racer is I, I could just hear a two second clip of that. And I would know what it is. That the, heavy thunking beast of a machine that it's I, i'm yeah i'm i'm not quite dorky enough to be able to list the, the sound designer and sound mixer and sound editor and everything like that maybe maybe gabo can help me out on that one but they certainly uh did some nice work on these three movies ben burt and his whole team did a great job uh on all this stuff way to go Benny. yeah ben burt is he's done star wars stuff for a while and he also uh he's behind stuff like wally he did the voices for wally and eva and all that he's um He's your, he's your sound guy when you need sound, but clearly got an ear for genius. He's created some of the iconic sounds of our childhood. Yeah, so one of the clear takeaways that we, that we are getting to here is that the sounds are perhaps, if not definitely, one of the best things about the prequels. Uh, a couple of things that I just want to bring up before we move into the point section. Uh, I think, you know, some of the characters that we see here, a few of them, as Dan referenced earlier, really shine despite some of the failings of, this, of, these, uh, of these prequels. To name a few, Qui-Gon Jinn, which was already referenced, also Mace Windu, Samuel L. Jackson, despite the bad writing, is such an engaging character every time that you see him speak, which I think is just such a testament to his skill. And then one other character that I want to bring up, Shmi Skywalker, was a character that I found very engaging throughout Phantom Menace, the, the push and pull of her relationship, and then also her haunting last line in Phantom Menace saying, don't look back, don't look back, which ends up being very, very important moving into the later, the later movies. I think her performance is especially, um, especially memorable for me as well. She's key. You, know, you have to bring her up and... and um... I mean, she's the reason, you know, she's the pivot point for Anakin Skywalker to, um, to become Darth Vader. And yet her, uh, I think her arc is, is tragic, but, um, 
you're right, Jordan. She definitely makes an impact, um, and good thing too, because if yeah, that was one other thing that had sort of landed with a thud about the prequels, they'd we probably wouldn't be singing the praises we are now. So yeah, the and and it should be mentioned the the actress that plays Shmi Skywalker, Pernilla August, uh, again just just brings in a great performance. Um, you know, Pernilla August could could even be a could even be a, a Star Wars name in her own way. Just just throw a Skywalker at the, at the end. You didn't even need to add Shmi. Uh, but again, a, a great overall performance, uh, echoed in in, a, in in many ways by the great performances by the dorks. You know, I'm struck if if the if Lucas and his team had performed half as well as these three dorks did during this one point question, we might not have a podcast tonight because the sequels might not, because the prequels might not be so bad. Uh, but with that, it is our tradition to dole out points at the end of each of our questions. So, you know, these points really could be going in a lot of different directions. Dan, you talked about the great score of John Williams, um, specifically Duel of Fates. I love your hot take. Um, I think it's a very defensible one, and it's definitely one that I absolutely love. Another one that I absolutely love is the the droid fight scene, um, which if you ever listen to the NBC Sports theme for Sunday Night Football, there's 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 a remarking, remarkable similarity between the two, but just a nice, nice little theme. Josh, you also brought up some of the great sound designs, some of the specific sound designs, um, specifically with the Slave One, one of the coolest ships that we've seen in the Star Wars universe, but then also the specific sound design along with that. But that's not why you're getting the points because you're not getting the points. The person who's getting the points is the one who actually brought up the sound design, and that's going to be going to Gabe, specifically the shout-out to Ben Burt and his team. I'm not going to dock you any points for not knowing anybody on his team, but the generational talent of Ben Burt, who has been doing sound design on Star Wars all the way back to A New Hope, um, came up with the, the voice for the sound for Chewbacca and some of those other great sound designs as well. So, Gabe, one-point question, one-point earned goes to you. Another happy landing. Speaking of happy landings, well, nope, we're not going to be speaking of them anymore because we're heading to our two-point question. And the two-point question is going to be dealing with, is going to be focusing on the discussion of what should be the focus of any discussion surrounding the prequels. And that is, what did they do wrong? What are the major failings of the Star Wars prequels? So that's going to be our two-point question. Gabe, get us started. Don't take up all the time, please. All right, I'll try and narrow my list to like 23 things only, and, and then we'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass it off. Um, no, I mean, um, yeah, there's some good stuff that you can pick out in these, and, and they remain entertaining movies for dorks like us, but they're just not great, despite the sort of near cult following they've picked up by some of the fandom in, in years past. And, and while I get that, like, you look to the opening crawl of episode one, The Phantom Menace. Here's the, here it goes. Here's the crawl. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. Oh, okay, cool. That's great. The taxation of trade routes is in dispute. And 10-year-old me goes, what? And I, I think it's just, it, it has an interesting human message, you know, at the core of this, and it consistently fails to deliver on that. It goes off in all these, all, just like the points there, Jordan, all these different directions that it can go off in, it does. And it cannot bring itself to focus on the main core story of the fall of Anakin Skywalker and the rise of Darth Vader and the Empire. When you get down to it, I think that's the core. You know, you can throw in, it's a love story, yes, and it's a, it's a story about friendship with Obi-Wan as well, and I think both of these are also neglected storylines, but that's where the prequel's biggest failure is, is, in, is really in failure to, it doesn't stick the landing on, the, on what should be the core story 
pretty much ever. Um, it makes, it goes everywhere else it can. And yeah, while the world building's great and I'm certain the toy sales were too, I know I had a few of them. It just does it, it for good movies. It does not make, um, you know, going back to the notion of the Jedi. And that's the other thing, everything that you, that we talked about is, you know, a positive, you know, a few minutes ago, there's a dark side to that, if you will. The Jedi are also as cool as it is to sort of see them at their power. They're idiots throughout the prequels. Uh, I mean, Luke Skywalker pins them in Last Jedi. He has that line about at the height of their power, they allow Darth Sidious to rise and wipe them out. And that is exactly what happens. Um, they're such believers, you know, in their own supremacy that it's kind of hard for them to imagine what's, it, it's hard for them to see what's happening right in front of them, that, that Christopher Lee actually tells Obi-Wan, tells Ewan McGregor, point blank, the whole plan in episode two. And he's like, nah, you're lying, you're lying, which I suppose you could argue is pretty brilliant for the, from the dark side, but... Um, and this extent, another thing we talked about, CGI Yoda, also kind of yikes. It was great to see Puppet Yoda back for episode one. And when you transition to CGI Yoda, you gain some stuff. But that lightsaber fight, if Yoda's such a great swordsman, does he have to do the jumping bean bit? I mean, what if he wields, what we're missing is like, again, it, it seems uh, this contest cannot be decided by mastery of the force. But why can't it be? I mean, we, he just sucked up lightning. You know, he... Dooku tossed a couple rocks at him. It's pretty weak sauce attempts, really. You know, why can't Yoda, like, control his lightsaber with the Force? You know, why can't he, you know, why is that, can't that be his flourish? What is there new that we're bringing to this? Why, you know, there's, there's missed opportunities like that when, again, the prequels fail to, to take off. I rest my case. I pass the shoe. The man pass. Uh, I will jump in here, Gabe, because I want to piggyback off a couple of things that you said. First and foremost about the Jedi, I, the notes that I had in, in my little captain's log for tonight's episode, I had the simple equation, Jedi equal morons. Because you're right, the plan is laid out to them. They, they, can't, they can't see that which is right in front of them. And even if they are so blinded by their own quote-unquote religion that they can't see that which is around them, take that off the table. These are supposed to be our galactic defenders, the ultimate warriors. And yet when Order 66 rolls around, they're wiped out in like three minutes. And I get, okay, some of them are attacked from behind, yet I thought we could sense danger around us. Yeah, so called the force, I thought, yeah. Right, so that's that admittedly is is a little odd. Then... You've got the quartet that confront Palpatine and, you know, Kit Fisto, who was great on Geonosis and he's wiping out troopers all over the place. That is, that, that action sequence is like out of a B movie as Palpatine stabs with his lightsaber in this awkward kind of motion and Kit Fisto like awkwardly lunges backwards because he's been, I mean, Wait a minute. Okay, so you are about to confront the guy who's the evil mastermind behind this whole plan, and you're not prepared for him to whip out a lightsaber and try and kill you? They're wiped out like it's, not, I mean, just embarrassingly lazy execution. The other thing that I want to piggyback off of what you said is that this prequel trilogy goes in so many directions, it, it lacks focus. And the question that I come to is, Whose trilogy is it? Because the original trilogy, we know whose trilogy that is. It's Luke Skywalker's trilogy. The farm boy who learns about the Force and grows up to be this you know, great Jedi and he, and he helps save the day. But you could argue the prequel trilogy is Anakin's trilogy because it's 
turning him into Darth Vader. You could argue it's Padme's trilogy because her rise to political power, and then of course she births Luke and Leia, and she's the ultimate, you know, kind of pivot point along with Shmi for Anakin to go to the dark side. You could also make the argument that it's Obi-Wan Kenobi's trilogy because he is the last of the Jedi along with Yoda, but he's, I mean, he's the guy. He trained Anakin when, you know, Qui-Gon said, you got to do this, and then they have their big battle. And so it adopts the spray and pray method, and it just unfortunately doesn't hit on any of those points. In my opinion, you know, it tries to go for all these huge stakes, and it, but it plants its flag in so many different areas that none of them actually resonate in any kind of meaningful way. And you could also make the argument that it's Palpatine's trilogy. You get a lot of his like behind the scenes scheming and, and like in thinking about we, we sort of struggled with this during the what is good portion where we would start to talk about something and then we'd be like, well, but I, I don't want to step on something that we're going to talk about later or I can't say that this is too good because there's this other part that's really bad. Like I think overall Palpatine's plan for his rise to power and becoming emperor is a reasonably logical like good sound plan but my goodness it is boring gabe you're right like okay you you want to incite a civil war like okay there are some interesting fun exciting ways to do that no let's have it be about a, a dispute over the taxation of trade routes and a blockade like come on like like george lucas can't you come up with something a little more exciting than that and then you know how does how does palpatine get into power in the first place a vote of no confidence which was a good joke by jordan at the start of this podcast it was not an interesting part of that movie. And then, like, how does he, like, accrue power once he's in that position? Oh, we, we need to vote emergency powers. Like, all this parliamentary nonsense is just boring. And, and there, there could have been more exciting ways to tell that story, I think. And they just, and like, I think Lucas, in an attempt to make it realistic and plausible, ended up making it boring. And I think, and you know, you know what, if he wants to talk about politics, which, you know, given the era in which it was made, I think those parallels are probably unmistakable. That's great. You can do that. But at the same time, then you, is this for kids? Who are you making these movies for? Is it for the kids that are going to grow up with these movies? Are you making it for kids every time? Because that's almost clearly why Anakin's a child in the first uh, movie. And, you know, the, you know, it's always the toy sales and, and we all played the video games. I haven't mentioned Battlefront or Battlefront 2 yet. The original ones, they were great. I cut my teeth on those on Xbox. Fantastic game. Like Dan said, spray and pray. We're going to make it for kids, but I'm also going to make a, a political statement at it's the same trying, time. Trying to be everything at once. Yeah. You don't know if it's for kids. You don't know if it's for, you know, the Aaron Sorkin West Wing crowd and it ends up being movies for nobody. Well, and I think one of the unfortunate byproducts is because of all that politicking, boring nonsense, the thought then is, oh, but wait, these are also kid movies, so we need to make sure we throw in some elements for kids, and what ends up happening there? We get Jar Jar Brinks trying to eat the lizard on a stick, and it slaps the other way. We get the march into the pod race, and we get the fart joke 
with the animal that, you know, passes gas in front of Jar Jar. Then we get him preparing the pod and all of a sudden he steps up and, oh, I got zapped and now my tongue's gone. I mean, these just nonsensical bonehead. And it's not just Jar Jar because he gets a bad rap and I've heard a fan, I don't know if it's a fan theory, but a rumor that like bigger things were planned for him, that he was going to be an antagonistic plot point down the road, but that the reception to him in Phantom Menace was so egregious that Lucas scrapped all that and he basically just became sort of a, a political puppet down the road. But all of these characters get cheeseball lines or get little dopey bits to try and cater to kids. And that's fine. Like, but if you're going to make a kid's movie, make a kid's movie. And that means if you're going to make a kid's movie, then your main point is not the taxation of trade routes and a blockade, which we don't ever see, by the way. It's super important, but not important enough to actually show us on screen because we think, oh my God, that's going to be really boring. We better not put that on screen. We better, you know, have Jar Jar you know, getting farted on by some animal as they're trucking their way to the pod race. That's better. But if, like, pick pick a lane and stay in it. And and to my earlier point, and Josh, you echoed it, it's like when you go in all these different directions, you end up going nowhere. Yeah, Dan, you're absolutely hitting on some some really crucial bits in terms of the negatives of these films. You know, with Jar Jar Binks, you also have the obvious offensive overtones of his character and it's not just with Jar Jar Binks you also have the the viceroy of the trade federation there's some problematic elements to the execution of those characters as well um and, and just some like just things that are that uh, as, as the kids would say these days they are they are more than cringeworthy well and and I think you have to throw Watto into that mix as well because I think that's an awfully uh, anti-Semitic character when you consider some of his uh, physical features and how stingy he is about money. Uh, I think that's that's a precarious sort of stereotype of a character as well. In addition to, yes, um, I mean, Jar Jar Binks is, there's a whole host there. And I think the Trade Federation, um, with the way those characters are designed and the just outlandish accents there. And, yeah. you know, even I remember even sitting in the theater watching that the first time, and, and I'm sure we all felt the exact same way. You're sitting there watching, and you're like, it's Star Wars. We haven't had Star Wars on the big screen. We haven't had Star Wars on the big screen, new Star Wars, in our lifetime. Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. You guys weren't born yet. I was two years old, so I wasn't going. We had maybe gone to the special edition re-releases, but that's Star Wars we've seen before. So that's not, this is new Star Wars in the heyday of our fandom. So we're sitting there and we're like, oh my God, it's going to be great. And you're watching this movie and being like, okay, well, I don't, you know, you leave it and you're like, I have to convince myself that it's good, right? But I remember even the first viewing, hearing that thinking, boy, that's, that's just an odd, a very odd choice. And, and I think not, Odd is putting it nicely because I think it's an offensive and just bad choice. I mean, it's just unjustifiable, all these things at this point. I mean, but don't worry, they're kids' movies. It kind of makes it worse. And, and, you know, it's not that the original trilogy didn't have this problem either. You know, any mention of sand people is not great either. But the prequels, yeah, have uh, for Star Wars really an alarming uh, amount of this sort of piling up against them. 
and Dan, you, you know, when you bring up Watto too, I think especially when he comes up in uh, Attack of the Clones and the hat that he is now wearing, that really, really does not age well. And what well, it, it forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, and that's not even 20 years ago. I mean, right, we, yeah. we sit here and we think, like, shouldn't we know better? And that's not that long ago. Oh, no, not but, at all. But yet, 20 years later, we're, we're still seeing the same stuff. So I, I, we got kind of off track there, um, but I think delving into some heavy stuff. But, but I think it's applicable. Well, and I, I think it's important that, that I think it's important that we apply that too in terms of this discussion because a lot of the things that these movies do wrong are perhaps more surface level and execution based, but there are deeper problems that come along with them too. One of the I wouldn't even I wouldn't call this surface level necessarily, but one of the other problems, Dan, that you brought up, which posed a question for me that I want to pose to the group, it centers around dialogue. The dialogue in these films is abhorrent. It is just just awful, and it and it so often brings nothing unless the characters bring something to bring it out. Um, and it made me think, and, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna give the dorks a little leeway here. You can go in two different directions for this question that I'm gonna pose to you. I have, I want to know either what is the worst Anakin line of the prequels, or just the worst piece of dialogue across the entire three films. Who wants that at first? I'll, I'll go first. Um, it's an Anakin line, but it's, it's spoken by Anakin, but it's when he is Darth Vader. And I don't need to say the line because we all know what the line is. It's that prolonged, no. I mean, what in the world was anyone on the set of this film thinking when that how in the world is that reflective of Darth Vader? Like Gabe, you mentioned earlier how there were little clues dropped in, some of the ship designs, and, and so sort of precursors to what we were gonna see later on. And if we're thinking that's a precursor to this menacing Darth Vader, what in the world? And I get, it's Darth Vader in his infancy. So that line is bad and makes no sense whatsoever, but it begets another problem because because of that, which was a terrible line to begin with, they then go into Return of the Jedi in the special edition and add another ridiculous, nonsensical no from Darth Vader that makes utterly no sense. So it's, it's one bad decision compounding with another bad decision. And that's not the only time that mistakes in the prequels harm other Star Wars films because that poor guy who, and I don't know the actor's name, but that poor guy who was the force ghost of Anakin in the original Return of the Jedi, he gets bumped and he's on the cutting room floor somewhere and we're never gonna see him again because now that Hayden Christensen is Anakin, that's it, he's in there. But it's, and it's not authentic, okay, fine. It's authentic to the timeline. It's not authentic to the original movies. So long story long, which is the way I roll. Ironically, I got five minutes out of what is effectively a two, a two letter word and line. So there. I'm gonna go next um, and I'm gonna be much more brief than Dan. And I'm just gonna say the word sand. And I think we can just move on after that you, you don't, uh, you don't want to extrapolate about what 
what it is about sand? Well, it, if you if you need to know, I, I it's it's coarse, uh, and it and it just gets everywhere. That that son of a gun and grains of sand. My goodness, but like not only is that just stupid dialogue, but Anakin and Padme's first kiss comes right after that, and it's like. In you know what, what gets world, me to fall in love with you? Yeah, your your, your distaste of sand. Yeah, it, it, in what world is this the type of dialogue that brings out this type of emotion in people? Uh, it's the the scene goes from ridiculous to something far beyond that, and I, I actually feel like it sullies John Williams' reputation. Uh, in this scene as well, because the music flourishes when th- when they're kissing, and then when Padme breaks it off, the music cuts off abruptly, and and as if John Williams was like, "I'm I'm trying to do something here, and I just I got nothing to work with. I don't know what else to do. I'm out. <laughs> you don't get any more of my music in this scene. <laughs> so yeah, this sand is is my worst." To make matters worse, I think if you continue that line, it just it's just Anakin's best attempt at a pickup line, right? Because he does that intro with sand, and he finishes it off with, that's not like here. Here, everything's soft. Right, Ooh. yeah. So he's even trying, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, like... Intended, yeah. This is something that George Lucas wrote as, like, something that Anakin would have probably, like, rehearsed in front of his mirror the night before. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, the... We're in the lake country. There's going to be sand. I, I can I can bring sand up, and then Padme starts telling the story about swimming to this little island, and he's like, "Yes, here's my shot." I don't like sand. What is sand? Sand is. I don't like sand. Sand is stupid. No, no, no I need more than that. I need more than that. It's it's rough. It's uh, it's coarse. It's like it's so sandy. No, Anakin, come on. No, these are um, both excellent picks. I honestly, I almost wanted to say. Um, my vote lie if there is such a thing lies with Dan for not just yeah no is terrible but the fact that it also after the fact replaces I had forgotten that they that they uh, I know they replaced Anakin uh, they replaced Hayden Christensen with Sebastian Shaw is um, that actor's name in Return of the Jedi who was old Vader that poor guy Um, but yeah I'd forgotten they'd added the no as he sends Palpatine down the elevator shaft for the first time yeah boy that's pretty bad for mine I'm gonna I'm gonna go with another one and it's sort of a throwaway but I think it stands for something that's a problem for the whole thing. I'm going to say it's that medical droids line toward the end of Sith. For reasons we can't explain, we are losing her. It is, and I'm picking that because it's a huge disservice to Padme. I get, like, she's a pretty cool character in her own right. Um, thanks to Natalie Portman, and actually thanks to some of, if there is any good character writing in this, she gets some of at least the on-paper better stuff. Um, so it's a disservice to Padme's character, but also it's just so lazy. You can't give us anything. You can't show us one scene of Palpatine trying to, you know, pull an, a proto TLJ Luke and try and force draw energy from it. Like just show it anything, literally anything other than, um, you know what, it, this script's due tomorrow and um, I don't have anything else. So for reasons they cannot explain, Padme dies and it's just dumb. And yeah, that's the, the script is ultimately when it comes down to it, the problem with all three of these prequels, uh, Lucas, had you know his hand in it he had a a few other hands in it i think carrie fisher did her best and uncredited rewrites to clean up some of this stuff god bless her but um yeah that line is emblematic of problems with the scripts as a whole yeah gabe that line feels like they should have had like ferris bueller turn to the camera and be like 
they bought it. Like, <laughs> like you, you just can't believe that the audience would would swallow this. It's just just utterly ridiculous. You you guys picked some great lines because, I mean, Gabe, first to yours. Yeah, I mean, when Jordan first brought up the idea of dialogue, the first word that came to mind to me was lazy. The writing is just excessively lazy Absolutely. time and time and time again. It's they There's so much dialogue of people explaining the things that they are doing on screen. And last time I checked, you watch movies with your eyeballs. So like I can kind of figure that part out. You know, we need the dialogue to tell us other things, to create some kind of depth or emotion. And Josh, that gets me to your line. And I think it's so perfect as you pointed out, that that horrendous and, and meaningless exchange then leads to this ultimate moment of them embracing because that's so emblematic of the total non-relationship and non-chemistry that those two characters have, and yet we are supposed to believe that this is the reason that Anakin goes to the dark side. I do want to defend that Williams moment a little bit because it's not quite as Dan, it's not quite an ultimate moment because that happens just before the arena, right? Padme is still trying to do the right thing and hold back. So that, I think that's sort of soft fade out from, uh, you know, whatever that, that wind engine is that fades out there real quick is that's Williams saying, yep, nope, not yet. He's, and he's teasing us almost like Jaws, you know, just with the romance of it all. Sands so, coming. So basically what you're saying, Gabe, is that, that John Williams once again saves the day and is the only <laughs> reason that that moment has any sort of emotional crux whatsoever because it's not delivered on screen and it's not delivered through the dialogue. I would agree and I would say uh, William saves it um, in another way too because while we're talking about the woodenness of it all and, and, the, and poor delivery and poor lines across the board, um, what I think we're also talking about um, is poor direction. Um, there are some great sequences and there's some inventive stuff going on in here but when it comes to the actors, I don't think the director on that set is concerned really about performances. The famous line of I think it was it was Harrison Ford or either Carrie Fisher's was that you know what's it like working with George as a director and you know any any acting direction he would give you would come up and basically mutter faster more intense and go back behind the camera at heart Lucas is an editor he is a post production player he likes manipulating film he likes showing what the post production process can do and as these movies go on yeah not only does he have very little interest clearly in directing um, any of the performances trusting the actors to deliver and sometimes they do and you know Hayden Christensen I don't want to bash too badly because he's been a great ambassador for star wars and by all accounts he's a genuinely nice dude so i'm certain it was hard to work with george there on that one hayden you did your best but i i wish you'd had a little more in the can some days ultimately yeah when and by the time we get to two and three when so many of the sets are fake you can't even move the camera that much because that's an extra hundred grand every time you pivot the camera 10 degrees you know and while lucas has kind of made him money now and all you know there was a limit for what Fox was willing to bankroll, I'd, I'd, I'd bet, even for a Star Wars movie. Um, and there's just no dynamism, with the exception of some scenes that, again, are completely computer-generated, like the opening of Revenge of the Sith, which is maybe the most dynamic camera work that the, the entirety of the prequels see, with the camera looping in and around the flying spaceships and down through the battle and all that. And, um, and the fight choreography, too. You know, We talked about how good that is um, in Duel of the Fates. That's also kind of a high point. As soon as you get in, Later on, um, I think some of the sets for the, the heroes fight is physical. It has to be. So you're actually watching what you're supposed to be watching there, which is the emotional content on the screen. Gabe, I'm glad that you mentioned that about Hayden Christensen. Because, yeah, that, I, I'm not going to bash 
the performances of the actors because I do think that you know the likes of Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor and and Liam Neeson. I mean, I, I think they do the oh, best they can. And yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think the script does them no favors. And, and yeah, I think it's widely known that George Lucas is not a director of of getting the best acting performances. That that's not his gift. We all have different gifts, and that's not. I mean, he's not he's a nice. visionary. He's an idea guy. He's a big okay. picture guy, and he created this incredible universe. So it's kind of like stay in your lane and, and get somebody else. To, to focus on that kind of stuff. So I'm not gonna- I'm good for the original trilogy. Exactly, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna bash on the performances, but I do think you made a really good point about the wooden nature of those performances. And I think it does not help when you're trying to coax emotion and gravity in situations and out of situations when you're surrounded by green screens and blue walls and entirely fake surroundings. I mean, that would be difficult for even the best actors to, okay, envision yourself, you're in a giant arena and you're surrounded by all these bug-like creatures or, okay, no, you're in a droid factory and you've got a duck under this thing and it's and the irons and the fires are going everywhere, but it's really important because, you know, your girlfriend, she's gonna get crushed over there. So I think it would be hard to, to, okay, yeah, 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 I'm good. I can put myself in, in that position. And the CGI, the bloated CGI nature of these movies, I, I think is really, really distracting. A few podcasts back, we gave Mandalorian a ton of credit for the look and feel of Star Wars. And this, a lot of times, just doesn't look and doesn't feel like Star Wars. Yes, this is before the original trilogy, but what was so good about that, right? George Lucas himself said he wanted a galaxy that looked lived in, right? Okay, well, unless 30 years in terms of a galaxy qualifies as lived in, then why does not the prequel trilogy galaxy look lived in? Why is everything shiny and new and so much more advanced than stuff that happens 30 years later? It just... It, it doesn't add up. There's a huge disconnect there visually to me. And I think it becomes so distracting that it takes you out of the story entirely. And I think part of what's problematic about the CGI too is the seeming randomness of it at times. I'm thinking of the battle in Geonosis when you have a large number of actual actor Jedi, but then you have like this one random CGI Jedi and he's CGI because... Django's going to shoot him and then he's going to fall down. It's the seeming randomness of like when we're using the CGI and when we're not using it until it just became we're going to use it all the time. Another, maybe not random use of it, but a misuse of it, and there are plenty of those, is the, the battle scene that we were praising earlier on between Obi-Wan and Django. You have this great interaction when they're inside, when they're actually like talking back and forth. And that's, that's when that battle like kind of starts to begin a little bit. It's more of a verbal battle then. But then once they're outside, Django is now CGI. Obi-Wan is not, though. So, it, it, which is important, too, because if you look at Revenge of the Sith, towards the beginning of that battle scene, when um, Sidious is dropping the the ramp on him or whatever that is, that's a CGI Obi-Wan. So it's this like, sometimes we're going to use the actual humans, but then other times we're going to use the CGI. And Dan, to your point, I think becomes incredibly distracting. In that early Sith scene, isn't there like a super awkward Count Dooku like spinning flip from a bridge that's like, why, why, why did this happen? When there's staircases on either side. Just because Yoda did it, he wanted to show that he could do it too. You know, it's like, 
Yes, all all old Jedi have this capability. See that that to me though speaks to a line we've used in previous podcasts about other things that we just don't understand. It's like they just can't help themselves. It's like we know. Oh well, we we just have CGI. Well, he could do like a spinny flip. We could do that. Oh, we could do that. Oh, well then. It would be heck, cool if we just why like, would we have him walk downstairs if we could yeah. have a good computer generated Christopher Lee spin and flip his way down? Or pull a magneto, have him you know just float the image of Christopher Lee three D down onto the you know he can stand, he can sort of you know that I don't know. They're, he's a dark lord of the Sith. They can do anything. But yeah, no, they. That's exactly the line to bring up. They can't help themselves. And to your point, Jordan, you bring up the Obi Wan Jango fight. I also, as kind of cool as that scene is, I also want to point out that's a stupid fight. Why is Obi-Wan punching and kicking Jango Fett when he has literal superpowers to draw by? He, he lost his lightsaber and his hands are tied up and all of a sudden he's lost how to use the force. He can't just like set off Jango's rocket or flamethrower or anything like that. I mean, it, the, it's the inconsistency with which this stuff is and randomness with which this stuff is applied. I guess um, he can't and, use force in the rain. Oh, yeah. If it's that, that much, too much water is just, it's like unbreakable. Right. Sure. The force Uh, is not waterproof. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And this uh, not being able to help themselves or or maybe just Lucas not being able to help himself. It infiltrates even some of the good scenes that we were talking about before the, the, the battle on Geonosis is really fun, but that's like what, like a 45 minute, scene but by the end of it the pod race in phantom menace is great but that's again from start to finish that's probably more than 30 minutes of that movie from when they get to the you know the the bunta eve for the pod race uh to to the to the end when anakin finally wins so so much of the you know dan you talked about how the the themes needed to be edited individual scenes uh needed to be edited much more tightly also yeah, Josh, to your point, uh, one of the producers, uh, I think it was Rick McCallum, um, talked about how this movie was kind of uh, virtual filmmaking. That is to say, it was, it was made, some of these scenes that these shots we're seeing were taken or, or worked on years and miles apart um, to come to their full, uh, you know, final form because of, yeah, all the CGI, because of all the post-processing. By the time of Attack of the Clones, the way they're making these movies is Lucas basically asks for cool action scenes or cool concepts from the visualization team. They do a basic, literally like photo, like just if one of us took a cell phone and we would sort of act out some of the scenes from the script that Lucas has in mind there, try and give him something he wants. And if he approves that, then it goes into an animatic. So it gets a very rough, but sort of more precise, rough draft in terms of where the camera's going to move and who the character and what the characters are going to do. And then that goes into pre-visualization, which is sort of like another layer of rendering that gets things even finer. And then they basically show that to the actors and say, here, do this. And yeah, when it comes to the point about the Jedi and the Coliseum or, um, or Anakin or Obi-Wan or Padme fighting one of the monsters they're encountering, I don't know what they were told on set. It probably didn't matter anyway, because I guarantee you the final product was not what that was. Yeah, some of these Jedi jump into frame. And if you sort of try and remove the droid from your vision, their lightsaber moves make almost, I mean, they're, they're comical almost. It's like one shade, you know, laughable more so than the Princess Bride's worst moments while the overall effect is sort of such that it overwhelms the senses and you kind of don't notice how bad everything is at once, when you start peeling back the layers of this onion, um, yeah, the focus, like we said, was sort of on the wrong thing. And, and what suffers is the characters. And that was the core thing that made the original trilogy work. I mean, it's not to say that the, we're not, I don't want to say too, that we're here holding up the original trilogy as these flawless bastions of 
perfect Star Wars. They are not. They are, you know, perhaps not quite as flawed, but they have, you know, some of their own moments of drudgery, of slowness, of things that just don't need to be there, but not to this scale and magnitude. And moreover, the characters were always on point. And all the characters, particularly one of the central love stories that we have yet to touch upon here with Padme and Anakin, um, that whole emotional core is done such disservice from what it could have been. And I think that's part of the problem with the prequels. It could have been, they get so close every time. And again, they never stick the landing and they do not with Padme and Anakin. It's, we talked about the woodenness. Um, there's just, there can't be much, especially if the Jedi are supposed to be passionless, there's not even the passion of trying to hold back passion. You know, both of them are sort of just there trying to feel it, but the audience isn't. The chemistry just doesn't always work. Uh, I think when you sort of let the actors be themselves a little bit, you know, when they're talking in the, in the fields, in the boo, there's some flashes of what they could be there, but their relationship exists and is manufactured because the script demands it. And that's kind of as far as deep as that relationship goes sometimes. Yeah, I agree, Gabe. And this is where I will actually uh, hammer Hayden Christensen a, a little bit. I think those flashes all come from Natalie Portman. And sure. like when, when they're in sitting around in those fields, like you were talking about, like, like she's telling the story of like the, the first boy she kissed or like the first boy she was in love with or something. And even that is just like lazy writing. Like, okay, I got to write a scene where two people are flirting. Like, Ooh, I'll have one talk about their first kiss. And then the guy will get jealous and be like, all right, never mind. I don't want to hear about that anymore. Hayden Christensen delivers that line uh, in a wooden way um, earlier on when these two are paired up, when, um, we are gifted to the riveting scene of Padme packing for their trip to Naboo. And Anakin goes off about how unfair his life is. And Obi-Wan is, is, is overly critical and, and it's worse because he never listens. I mean, he's just so whiny and annoying. And, and that is uh, like, like, it's annoying to watch, but it also doesn't make sense that Padme would fall for someone like this. Yeah, Josh, I think you're picking up on a huge, huge point right there, which is if Padme is supposed to be this upstanding, moral, strong-willed figure, why is she putting up with this whiny, petulant, like, creepy boy it's one thing in phantom menace where oh like okay th th there's an age separation but we can we can say at a universe where that it's not too much of an age separation there are some like cute moments there i guess and that sort of works but i think it's only because of the age difference but then once you bring hayden christensen into the equation in the in in two and three to me it never makes any sense I particularly uh, also enjoy in the packing scene, I can't remember if it, I think it's slightly before we start loading up articles of clothing into the suitcase where Padme actually says to Anakin, because it makes me uncomfortable. Jordy, to your point about being creepy, we actually establish that she is creeped out by this guy who supposedly she is falling in love with. So. So we've got that going for us. Which is nice. I, I have to actually give Hayden Christensen a little bit of the doubt here and go back to something I said about direction earlier because he swings so far when, when he does finally you know, come to life there when he's 
not giving the faster, more intense delivery, when he does finally start to show some emotion, I have to imagine that at least has to be asked for because of how hard he swings for the fences on it. Lucas has to be, or somebody has to be the one saying, like, this is what the Anakin is right now. And maybe there's something that gets lost in translation. But yeah, there is so little that's appealing about Anakin in the movies as a romantic partner, as a friend, as a Jedi sometimes. You know, he's that guy who sort of always kind of comes through in the end, but you have to text him a dozen times to figure out if he's coming in the first place, and you don't know if he's going to bring the food you asked him to, and he's going to call you for directions. And then when he finally shows up, yeah, all right, he's got a heartfelt gift that he spent a lot of time making. But then, you know, he's going to pass out on your couch at 10 p.m., and he's not going to leave until noon tomorrow. I mean, that's the end. And he's going to complain about the movie choice the whole time. And you're not playing. He got the bad controller for the video games. This is the Anakin Skywalker of the prequel movies. And it's a big problem because, like, the we're only talking about the prequel movies here. But all the side media to the Clone Wars, the Clone Wars cartoon and all that, Anakin's such a different, much more interesting All the characters are. And I, I've not nearly watched this to the degree I have. But even the briefest glimpse I've had into this show has shown actual three-dimensional characters where none exists in the prequel trilogy. Um, so again the, the, again, the blueprints are there. It may not be the scripts, but there's enough going on, at least in the base of this, for good movies, good emotional storytelling to have taken place. And yeah, it doesn't. Part of the reason is the performances, and unfortunately a bulk of this falls on Hayden Christensen, who, well, he probably had a lot of, a big tough job to do anchoring this, these movies, also kind of did us no favors. And we also can't forget or dismiss the fact that somehow this whiny little twerp turns into the most feared Sith Lord in the entire galaxy that is Darth Vader. Like, it it just, no, I'm done. It's it's terrible, too, because I think we mentioned that the relationship sort of proceeds as the script prescribes. And that unfortunately means that by three, overstuffed a movie as that is, that basically means there's no further time to develop an already underdeveloped storyline. And all of a sudden, you know, she's pregnant and they have to hide that. And these are all good story beats. They've just, they've earned none of them. They just happen. And so all all the punch of these things, it's all lacking. Nothing lands with the same emotional resonance that the original trilogy or even the sequel trilogy at times displayed. Yeah, Gabe, that's a great point. I mean, think about the first time you saw Revenge of the Sith and the ship lands on Mustafar and here's Anakin and he's all a rage and Padme's there. I mean, you're thinking, oh my God, like this, this is the real deal. This should be the seminal moment in the Star Wars franchise. And I actually, I, I, there's, a, there's a nice visual and, and sonic moment when they're going kind of back and forth, Padme and Anakin, that is. And we get that shot of Obi-Wan at the top of the ship and you realize, oh, here, it's about to go down. Like, it's, it's happening. And Padme gives like a little hint of a... She's got like a little visual expression that's like, that she also knows, oh my God, I know what's about to happen here. And that's about as close as that scene in this movie gets to the emotional weight of what this should be because the rest of that scene is garbage. Anakin, you're breaking my heart and all that nonsense. Obi, I mean, Ewan McGregor tries his best. It's just not very good when he's trying to, you have done this to yourself. I mean, like, oh my goodness gracious. 
And so that is all flat. And then I don't believe a single word that anybody says until the end. I will say I have always enjoyed Hayden Christensen's delivery of the I hate you line when he's, he's all burned up and Obi-Wan's there and he's about to walk away and he screams, I hate you. And you're like, okay, he's, I mean, he's officially off his rocker now. He's, he's officially 100% turned to the dark side. Uh, but, you know, outside of, I mean, what did I just list? 2.5 seconds worth of, of film in, in this moment that's supposed to be, the, and, and don't forget, us as Star Wars, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. This prequel trilogy starts and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, it's going to take three movies, but we're going to get to see how Darth Vader comes to be. And we know what a bad dude he is down the road. I mean, this is going to be unbelievable. And it's just kind of like, really? That was it? Oh, well, that was kind of a disappointment. And even that scene, Dan, you know, it speaks to something we talked about earlier where that I hate you scene, it, it's a good line and it's a good couple seconds worth of film but it's it's it feels very unearned because that that's supposed to be this culmination of jealousy that that Palpatine presumably was feeding into Anakin his jealousy towards Obi-Wan but that was such like a it felt randomly dispersed throughout Revenge of the Sith that like sometimes Anakin's like yeah he's my father figure I'm I'm gonna be really close to you and then other times I'm starting to get jealous of you and it's just this like we're not sure what to feel and when to feel it until that 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 end point we're like oh okay we're supposed to feel this thing but but i didn't get there at the same time that you did buddy and i I think that's the problem jordan we are told what to feel and when to feel it as opposed to it happening organically again the script says x happens so you kiss you are now in love obi-wan stands at the top of the ship anakin is suspicious you did this you're the problem you're in league with each other and it's like whoa 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 let's go back like six steps let's talk about how and why i'm here first but yeah no they, they they lose things happen because they are quote unquote supposed to nothing is earned and it's we see the results time and time and time again it's 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 not satisfying yeah the creation of darth vader feels like a box that's been checked as opposed to this awesome terrifying and heartbreaking transfiguration and descent of a of a you know erstwhile noble person and even dan and gabe that scene you're talking about with obi-wan at the top of the ramp of the ship Dan, the, the way you described it, uh, Natalie Portman, easily, the, the quality of actress she is, could have conveyed that emotion um, and, and dread with no dialogue, but they throw in an oh no, because we have to be told that that she is feeling dread. And then of, of one of the other just terrible lines later during the course of Obi-Wan and Anakin's fight, which which is a cool lightsaber battle, but then they have to have, but then they have to pause to have these little lines of dialogue, as Gabe said, because that that is the script says it is now time for a break, and we get to exchange a couple lines. And Dan, you said you and McGregor's really, really going for it and and doing a great job. But again, I'll I'll come back to bashing Hayden Christensen from my point of view. The Jedi are evil that's a stupid line and it's bad line and it's, and it's delivered badly by Christensen. And I think it's actually accentuated how, how dull he sounds by 
Ewan McGregor shouting back, well, then you are lost. And maybe that's a little, uh, you know, on the nose, but that line resonated with me. And maybe it's just that Ewan McGregor is a little better actor. Maybe he had better material to work with. Um, You know, maybe Lucas decided he's the one I like. He's the one I'll actually direct. I don't know. But uh, I I, I do, you know, that that exchange is one that, that is always a highlight to me in terms of, this is a bad performance versus a good performance. Everything is, that's the, the phrase for it, Josh. Everything is, everything in these prequels is on the nose. You know, there's, there's no subtext. There's nothing to look beneath. Everything is surface level. Um, you know, I mean, it, you could call it a cartoon, except the cartoons of this are better by and large. And, you know, a, a line like that, it, you know what, that is a bad line. There's no good way, I think, to deliver from my point of view that Jedi are evil. But, you know, you, you consider that moment because, again, we, I said this earlier, the pieces, especially in Sith, are all there if the execution could do it. If there was some, and, you know, I don't mean to sit here and armchair direct, even though that's exactly what all four of us are doing right here. But if, you know, if there was some way to really layer in, I mean, Anakin's in a desperate situation in three. You know, if, if say that we have everything up, that's, you know, everything up to that point has been maybe something ideal for us. By the time we get into three, Anakin is separated from his best friend because they're, you know, gone off again. He's trying to hide a secret child with a secret wife that he shouldn't have. The, he's going to become a Jedi master, except he's not. He's going to be a knight on the council because the Jedi council doesn't trust him. And again, his best friend is asking him to spy on his mentor in Palpatine. This is a stressful situation for a guy who's already kind of emotional and trying to keep it in check. All of the pieces are there. You know, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. Anakin could deliver that with a kind of a desperation. Can't you see why I'm doing this? You know, you don't, we don't have to fight about this. You know, and their, and their inability then to reconcile becomes that much more tragic, but none of it's there. It's just all pew pew, which, yeah, is also kind of cool. You know, that's part of the reason we're all here in the first place. Again, I'll cop to that. But uh, there was always substance behind it, and there's just so little to be. Gabe, when you say that, it makes me think that part of the problem is the it, it is the lack of the emotional depth. It's good yeah. and bad, but but there's no there's, there's no examination between. There's that. no examination of jealousy. There's no examination of confusion because like at this point we still have to say like Anakin's young. He he's confused. He's stressed out, and there's no examination of that. There's no examination of all these different things that he's feeling. It's just like well, at this point he's bad. So so this is how he's gonna sound. Yeah, nobody validates his feelings. Nobody talks. To, I mean, and not that they should be for some of the more murderous impulses, but like nobody helps him. Stro- we also don't even see him struggle with the dark side, really. He just kind of snaps to it at, at some point. You know, there's almost there's a little bit of consideration in that scene we talked about earlier when he's waiting in his own house as Mace Windu and the Stooges all go get slaughtered by Palp- uh, by Sidious. But yeah, that's about all we get as far as him really truly contemplating in a consistent, emotionally resident way um the dark side you know you know can you can these things coexist i feel these things within myself but i'm not supposed to be we don't feel that tension except in the scenes where we're supposed to feel that tension it's not built in it's not threaded through this and just to quickly go back to the that that awkward courtship you know gabe when you were talking about that it also made me think of the fact that anakin admits to padme that he slaughtered this entire group of of sand people and she consoles him afterwards which is just like her character wouldn't do that like her character would say what's wrong with you why did you do that that was an immoral 
impassioned. It was an awful thing to do. It, 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 it just, it doesn't make sense. Or even again, back off and say like, okay, that's troublesome and I'm very alarmed right now, but I love you. So let's talk about, you know, where, you know, or maybe then she goes to Obi-Wan or she tells Sidious or, Pal you know, she tells Palpatine, like, I know you're close with Anakin. He considers you a mentor and a friend. Like this happened. I don't know what to do with this. There's all these sort of missed opportunities to make something, but no, we're just going to keep trotting out things like the stupid droid factory sequence, which, yeah, is a really long sequence that also engenders some really long parts of the Geonosis fight when 3PO continually makes bad puns for about 20 minutes straight since he's taking over the Jar Jar comedic relief mantle in, in Attack of the Clones. But yeah, there's plenty of time. We got to sell the toys. You know, that's, I guess that's the bottom line. We got to sell the toys. We got to, you know, put butts in blockbuster seats. Um, but, you know, I'll give this to the sequel trilogy, and especially in this instance to, to Adam Driver, because I think he pulled a little bit from Hayden Christensen's Anakin Skywalker. They went for the characters first. There's dumb stuff that happens all over the sequel trilogy. Um, it could be argued, too, uh, to Josh's point earlier, that this is this being the Palpatine saga, especially thanks to Rise of Skywalker, where he comes back one more time as the guy pulling the strings the entire the entire way. But they always they went for the big feeling. It was they always went for the big Spielbergian original trilogy sort of feeling of hey, classic heyday Star Wars, and the prequels just they're they're empty by comparison. So if all that's true, that it's about selling toys and it's about putting butts in blockbuster seats, then where do the midichlorians come into play? Because that came completely out of nowhere and. I guess it was George Lucas's plan that that was going to play out in the sequel trilogy, but when he sold Star Wars to Disney, they very sensibly took it in a different direction. It, it just always, it, it felt so off-brand for what The Force was all about and didn't make much sense, and it sort of injected initially and really only pops up when it's kind of convenient or like, oh, remind us, oh, remember, yeah, th these things are still in play. Don't forget, we're going to, I don't know, maybe do something with that down the road. It just felt very odd and disingenuous, and there's no payoff, and so I just find it annoying. Theoretically, the midichlorians, because they don't really come back, as I recall, after one, theoretically, they I know Lucas had a plan for them, and we can get into that, but they kind of only exist to prove Anakin's potential as a Force user, Right. That's really the only reason, again, they're, they get name dropped in one and they don't get brought up again. Partially also probably because Lucas felt, you know, heard the backlash to them and was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to go down this road. Same as he did with Jar Jar. But yeah, they kind of are only introduced in one just so Liam Neeson can deliver some impressive sounding dialogue about how, you know, his thetan levels are through the roof. And yeah, you know, his higher medical account than uh, Master Yoda, right? Is, is, it, even is it possible that, so Liam Neeson tests his midichlorian, it's through the roof, it's, it's higher than Master Yoda. He is the chosen one. And that, that phrase is used throughout. And we hear the chosen one, and I mean, I hear that and I liken it to Jesus, right? I mean, that's, to me, that feels like the parallel that we're making there. That's usually the allegory, yeah. So are, are the midichlorians dumped in there to provide some science backing to sort of pull away from making it a, a completely religious decision? And I, I guess I'm asking because I don't know, because I hear the chosen one and I think, oh, well, he's, he, that, that's obviously a religious comp, but now you're telling me there's some science behind it, which is sort of anti the religious angle. 
Well, I think you don't know, Dan, because it's never explained clearly in in any in any way, shape, or form. Um, the spinoff of the chosen one is this prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. Well, this is all to totally new stuff. You know, generally prophecies are things that people have heard about before. We never know about this prophecy before it starts getting talked about we never even hear the the what the actual prophecy is we just hear described what will eventually happen once the prophecy is fulfilled it's so ambiguous and uh, you know dan the the metachlorians i i remember when i first saw phantom menace thinking like oh cool like that's what the force is about but in 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 growing up I, I i think it was a terrible decision and i'm glad they scrapped it and it just it takes the it takes the magic away from the force that if your ability to use the force can be boiled down to sticking a needle in your arm and testing how much of you know x substance you have in your blood well that's just really uninspiring i think is the word i think that is the primary effect that the metachlorians had is that they is that it took some of the inspiration away from the force the word that comes to mind for me is disingenuous in terms of the rest of the the rest of star wars right if you know one of the seminal lines about the force it's actually spoken by han he says hokey religions and ancient blaster or ancient weapons um are no use for a blaster by blaster by your sight so you know it, we have in the original trilogy that it is even if it's a hokey one it is a religion it's a belief and it feels disingenuous to make it this more scientific thing and i will say just a quick shout out to to rogue one i do feel like they do an excellent job of of bringing the 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 more religious feel of the force back into it the rogue one uh, it, they're servants of the wills right our bays and um and uh jared Imwe. uh yeah no, they, they do a really good job of the keeping the force sort of mystical uh, i think the sequel trilogy in, in general does an okay job about the um the force as sort of a spiritualism too uh, there are actually answers to some of these questions lucas a few years back gave an interview as to what um his planned uh sequel trilogy would have entailed you know that he had something sketched out um and he didn't offer much in terms of what the plot was going to be but he did talk about the midichlorians and the way he phrased it is yeah as dan said we are uh it is scientific it is sort of a scientific explanation but it also loops it back around onto sort of the spiritual side of things it was basically a scientific way to answer the question of god because the midichlorians were going to be you know they make up their living things that are in all our cells and all that kind of stuff and then if you get further down in the fabric of all things are beings called the wills. If you can hear the cool whip H, WH in there, um, the wills, as in the journal of the wills, which was um, the first, one of the first titles for, or subtitles for George Lucas's Star Wars drafts. I um, mean, the midichlorians were gonna sort of be uh, conduits that would communicate the will, the will of the wills, see what he did there, uh, through and that would sort of manipulate the force and actions all over the universe. So I think the what this this maybe actually answers the question about the prequels because then if Lucas would have had his way, there would be you know these massive off-screen godhead type celestial beings that would communicate through the germs your microbiome within your cells that would then tell you what to do. So maybe 
everybody is sort of just wooden and lifeless. And this is actually a perfect documentary representation of what life in Lucas's Star Wars galaxy is like. All the, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a dynamic character. This stuff's going to happen to you anyway. Might as well float through life. Oh, man. Can't believe we missed out on all that. Yeah, wouldn't that have been so exciting? Gabe, it does make me think of a question, though. What does God need with a lightsaber? Anakin, you can't just ask the Almighty for his ID. Wait, sorry. Anakin, I don't think you're in any position to ask a celestial being for identification. So a really, really great discussion here. One thing that should be stated, along with uh, providing some sort of rationale for why Anakin is this great Jedi that will turn into our theater, the midichlorians also provided a, a secondary, very important purpose, which is providing us with an opening to this podcast. So at the very least, uh, George Lucas, thank you for providing us with that. But with that, we will wrap up our two-point question. Uh, not surprising that it took us a little while to get through all of the failings of the Star Wars prequels, but definitely important to delve deep into the different missteps that these films took. So it is now time for me to dole out some points. Again, just as with the one-point question, a lot of different directions that I could go in. Gabe, you talked about the opening crawl and how um, exciting it was and then how boring it became. Just want to talk briefly, too, about the uh, opening crawl from Revenge of the Sith, uh, where you start off with just war, exclamation point. And, you know, you can, you, you can finish the song there if you'd like. Um, so you, you could definitely you could definitely dole out some points there. Dan, you talked about your, your, your very... Um, a very you know, spot-on equation of Jedi equals morons, which explains a lot of the missteps that the Jedi has taken in these prequels. Then you were also one of the, the you you also were a driving force in our discussion with, about the courtship and the very awkward, very creepy courtship of Anakin and Padme. But ultimately, the points, these two points are going to be going to Josh, and that is because of his spot-on analysis of the uh, Naboo trip packing scene between Padme and Anakin. Josh, I just absolutely loved your description of it. Um, I also, I, you know, I, you kind of forget when you're, when you step away from these films, what the scene is actually based around. Um, so, you know, really just, just, just stellar jobs there in terms of talking about packing suitcase. Well done, Josh. Revealed your opinion is, I'm winning this. I'm, I'm winning this sucker. And with that, we will now move on to our, our, our three-point question. We're going to be going to Dan first for our three-point question. And this is going to be a decisive question as it has ended up being the past few podcasts. So we've talked about what the prequels did well. Granted, there wasn't a lot to talk about, but we did talk about a little bit. Uh, we spent plenty of time talking about what they did wrong and what the missteps and the failures were. So now it's time for us dorks to earn our keep. So with that in mind, what I want to know is how would you fix the Star Wars prequels? And with this, I encourage you to bring up some specifics. What are some specific things you would change? What are some specific decisions you would wait, you would make if George Lucas came to you and said, dorks, I need to make the prequels better. What would you tell him to do? Dan, you're up first. George, good to see you, buddy. Why don't you, why don't you grab a seat? We got a lot to discuss here. Uh, all kidding aside, I'm, I'm going to be very brief and, and succinct, which is quite unlike me. I think it's very simple. George Lucas, you're not allowed to direct these films. You can 
come up with the ideas. We can sit in a room and you can say, this is what I want to do. And this is what I'd like to see here. And this is where I'd like the story to go over the course of these three movies. But George, you cannot sit in the director's chair. And when push comes to shove, the director gets to make the final acting and execution decisions. And if we're going in specifics, why not? George, I'm going to soften the blow for you here, George. I know it's kind of a tough ego shot that you don't get to direct these movies. So we're going to call in your close personal friend, Steven Spielberg. He's going to direct these movies for you because Steven works very well with actors. You work very well with Steven. So we're going to have it all taken care of there. We need to get good performances out of these characters. We need to get solid execution because you're the idea guy, George. So yeah, I would say I'm not married to the idea of Steven Spielberg directing Star Wars movies. I'm just trying to answer your question and give you a specific, but I think more to the point, uh, George Lucas cannot direct these movies. He cannot direct quality performances out of actors. And that is, in my opinion, what is most lacking in these films. As Gabe pointed out, the original Star Wars trilogy, a lot of the fun there comes from the great characters that exist there. And we just don't get those great characters with this one. We talked about how this trilogy could belong to a half dozen different characters and it doesn't belong to anybody because nobody's performance stands out. That's awesome, Dan. I can't believe it. that's such a perfect, simple, out-of-the-box fix for the entire prequel. You just make, you know, Lucas can produce them. He can even be in the editing bay. But yeah, he's not, on, he's not behind the camera. That's great. I went with sort of one change that I think could have a cascading effect down through the prequels and improve their quality. And that was you start Anakin at Hayden Christensen. You, you cut Jake Lloyd some slack. You make his life a little easier. You start with an aged up Anakin. And I think this gives you a few things on down the line. A, I think you don't have to talk about the number of midichlorians he has in his blood to show how powerful he is. He is you know, uh, a teenager, he's a 14, Padme's 14, let's make him 14. He's a 14 year old on Tatooine. He's already sort of discovered his force powers a little bit. He can make some stuff happen. He's a good pod racer because, you know, when his wire goes out on the pod race that, you know, uh, that Sebulba had sabotaged earlier, maybe he can force it back, force push it back into place. You know, let's see him do some of these things. He can get into the cockpit and hide when Darth Maul shows up. And all of a sudden now it's a lot more plausible that he could maybe manage a starfighter and absent a couple of lines like, whoa, this is tense, because clearly it is, you know, he can actually make, do some believable damage. This gets him, uh, this also evens him out with Obi-Wan. Then you get sort of not just a mentor or Padawan, but like a brotherly, much more sibling rivalry relationship, especially for Qui-Gon early on. And I think as they grow up, you know, Obi-Wan is clearly going to be his master, but they're basically peers. You know, how does this change their dynamic? Does it make it easier that Anakin would succumb to jealousy? I think uh, you have to make him sit with his choices a little more. I think uh, an older Anakin makes more sense for the Jedi Council to deny to train. He's, Anakin, as we first see him, isn't much older than the, uh, the younglings that we see him take out later in Sith. I think aging up Anakin early on in episode one, so we find him as is, um, and we don't have to you know, worry about recasting or anything like that. We just get one Anakin through the whole time. We see him grow. Um, we can see the dark side pull him more. We can see the effects that's actually going to have on him instead of just, you know, occasional brooding. I would like to see him say, keep the secret of having slaughtered the village. What happens when that gets out and he buries this stuff inside? I think aging up Anakin from the get-go would mitigate some of the creepiness factor we've talked about here. If there's a little less of a gap between them, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not calling that out. That is far from the worst part of their on-screen relationship. Aging Anakin up a little more, making them closer to equals, uh, I think would 
we could have them flirt a little bit more in one and remove some of the romantic plot in, in two. You know, we can just see them develop as, you know, friends, as whatever they're going to be more. And I think just, again, that these prequels come excruciatingly close sometimes to getting it right. And we, as we say, they keep tripping up. And I think this is one way to smooth out some of those problems that crop up just by starting off with a child, Anakin. Uh, again, no problem with Jake Lloyd. I think he does a fine job for what's asked of him in this. I, I, he is not the problem with that movie. And maybe removing him from it would, uh, <laughs> maybe it would, you know, ease up uh, some, of his, some of his Star Wars hardships. But that's my call. Start with Hayden Christensen. For my fix, uh, and Gabe, I, I got to give, give you some thanks because I think for my fix, I'm going to kind of, uh, I'm, I'm going to use your fix along with mine, although mine's focused on a different character, one that I actually talked about earlier. What I would like to see more of, or rather who I would like to see more of in terms of the prequels, is I want more Shmi Skywalker. I talked earlier in the podcast about how I felt like her performance was especially engaging and especially interesting in terms of the development of Vader. I talked about her haunting last line to Anakin as he was leaving, saying, you know, don't look back, don't look back. And he ends up not listening to that. And that, you know, could be interpreted as one of the key turning points in terms of his descent or ascent, depending on your feelings on the Force, um, towards Vader. Um, and, and a couple of specific ideas of how we would do that. First off, you know, Gabe, to go back to, to your idea, aging up, aging up Anakin, I think, would help with this, with this one specific idea. One thought that I had is, you know, if you had a scene during one where, you know, you know, Anakin and Shmi, they're both slaves and, and, they're, and, and one's freed, but the other one isn't. And especially it would be interesting, especially for this, if, if it was left up to Anakin to choose. And, you know, would probably have to go somewhere along the lines of like Qui-Gon was, you know, bartering with Watto and he said, okay, you know, you'll have, they have to choose amongst themselves. Shmi and Anakin will choose one or the other. And then Shmi Skywalker being the mother would obviously, you know, say to Anakin, like, you have to choose, choose you or me, which, which one of us is the one that's freed. And then if Anakin chose himself, he'd be dealing with this guilt. And that guilt would be another emotion that he would be feeling throughout the evolution of his character. You know, and I think also, if you increase her storyline in two and three, I think it could serve a helpful bridge towards his feelings for Padme. You know, ultimately we, 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 we only see two female figures for Anakin and, and, and there could potentially be a helpful bridge between those two. So ultimately that would be my solution. I would like to see more Shmi Skywalker. Well, uh, listeners, you may be able to guess where I'm going, but I'm replacing Hayden Christensen. Um, maybe he was given a lousy script. Maybe he received lousy direction, but he also did a lousy job of acting. And I'll tell you who I, I have. I have the exact guy that I think could do this performance better. And, and I, I, I like the idea of collaborating our, our edits here, having Steven Spielberg direct from the beginning with more interaction with Shmi and Jake Gyllenhaal as Anakin Skywalker. He's the same age as Hayden Christensen. And just a couple years before this was a movie called October Sky. And if you remember in, in that, it's a very young Gyllenhaal. So you can kind of see him in this sort of like 
man-child wonderkind type role. And then a little bit later for Hall comes Donnie Darko, where, where you get a little bit more of the angsty teenager. A couple years after that comes Day After Tomorrow, which I think is key because it shows that you could have convinced Jake Gyllenhaal to do a big budget blockbuster. Um, and then after that comes Brokeback Mountain, which I think the the relationship between Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger, Gyllenhaal could have used some of those talents to make the love story between Anakin and Padme much more engaging. And then a couple of later movies of Hall that kind of portray his potential to be a more dynamic Anakin Skywalker and eventually Darth Vader are Jarhead and Zodiac. Um, in Jarhead, he, he shows that he can be a physical force. And in Zodiac, he, he shows that he can be this this obsessive type character. Um, I, I think replacing Hayden Christensen with Jake Gyllenhaal, the age would line up. I just think he would have... He would have done a great job. I'm not saying it would have been easy, um, but but that that would be my uh, the the change that I would make that I think would have improved all three of these movies. Yeah, Hall is a, a incredibly capable actor. He's uh, emerged, I think, is one of the more interesting ones of um, everybody working today. And I, I didn't realize he and Hayden Christensen were the same age. That's a, a very interesting call. He definitely has the range to tackle the kind of Anakin that I think we're all talking about zeroing in on as the main character sort of answering that question of our ideal prequel trilogy. You know, we talked about that, you know, whose movie is this the way it's currently presented. All of us basically gave with the exception of Dan, I suppose, gave an answer that indicates that Anakin is going to be our central character. And I think it's interesting to now reframe this whole thing around, uh, around Hall with potentially Spielberg at the helm. We're looking at a whole new uh, prequel series boys. We're going to have some new favorite star Wars movies. But there are, there are so many ways to, I think these are good ones, but I, I'd be curious to see here if you guys had any other uh, one-offs that you considered before throwing your hat into the ring. Well, I, I have one just in terms of watchability, like currently, that if you just start Attack of the Clones and then anytime Anakin and Padme are in the screen together, fast forward. And then whenever they leave the screen, press play again. And I think you'll get about like an hour and 20 minutes of a decent like detective story action movie. You don't want to watch this scene about Sam. You can go about your business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you will miss Anakin with a pretty big flex where he can like levitate a pear across a table and then cut it up for his girlfriend. Um, that's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. Though his force abilities aren't so strong that he can use the force to cut the pair. He has to actually use a knife like us poor, you know, little little human beings. Well, he's civilized, not like those Tuscan Raiders. They're animals. Yeah, but isn't even that computer generated? I don't even think he <laughs> g- actually cuts a real pair. I think that's computer generated. That's the other thing I was going to say was no CGI allowed. And then I'd love to see what movie they made. Dan, you're you're right. It totally is a CGI pair. You can tell when Padme, when Natalie Portman like goes to eat it, that she's definitely like biting air. Yeah. So yeah. That, I think the Dan, to your point, getting rid of the CGI across the board could go a long way. You know, it's almost like, like I think of it almost as like a reverse chop challenge. 
Like instead of giving them something, <laughs> like, like just, just give them nothing. Say you can't use that and then see what they create. Because if you go back to the original trilogy, that's the situation they were in and they created. They the, did it. Yeah, they, they did it already. And, and, and as we've said multiple times, Dan, and as you said, they just could not get out of their own way. Um, now we, of course, similarly, can't get out of our own way which is why these podcasts sometimes go a little while uh, but with that we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this three-point question I'm gonna announce a winner here in a moment and as with the past two really a lot of different directions that I could go in Gabe I could could give these three points to you because your idea of aging Hayden Christian or aging Anakin Skywalker up um, really helped with one of the key problems that I had with my idea, which was, you know, with the current age gap, with how young Anakin is and a fan of Menace, like there's no way that Shmi Skywalker is going to be like, yeah, you choose which one of us is free. Like she's definitely going to free the little twerp. But if he's a little bit older, then maybe that explains that. Josh, you know, I really love the the specific actor idea that you came up with of replacing Hayden Christensen with Jane, Jake Gyllenhaal. But I'm not going to be giving you these three points because, frankly, the idea of replacing uh, Hayden Christensen, I just feel like it's low-hanging fruit. I think it's an idea that a lot of people could have come up with. So ultimately, the three points are going to be going to someone who we really would have expected at the beginning of this podcast wouldn't be ending up on top. But that's where you'd be wrong. Three points will go to Dan. And Dan, you will get three points because your removal of George Lucas as director is exactly what happened. If you look at the sequels, if you look at the, 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 the last three movies that we got to see, with the exception of Rise of Skywalker, um, although, Dan, you'll, you'll be an apologist here. So All right, I will. It's good that you're going to be able to talk here in a moment. But Force Awakens, Last Jedi, you remove George Lucas from the director's chair, and what do you get? You get very, very enjoyable films, films that are no doubt an improvement over the prequels. So with that, Dan, Three points to you. You come up on top with the fixing the Star Wars prequel Dork Festa podcast. Uh, so a couple of things. First of all, I'm assuming that with this victory comes that glowing orb that Boss Nass gets at the end of Phantom Menace. Is that will that be shipped in the mail or do I have to pick that up in person? Peace. <laughs> you son will get the glowing ball thing. <laughs> uh, thank you. Very much appreciate the victory. Uh, pretty much a, a comeback for the ages when it wasn't all that long ago that I admitted that I blatantly didn't know the difference between Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins. But I appreciate, yeah, that. I appreciate the win and let's stay away from those Middle Earth podcasts. It's just a simple hobbit trying to make his way in the universe. Stay tuned next week for our Hall of Fame Lord of the Rings movie discussion. Spoiler alert, it's going to be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And with that, it's time to call it a wrap for this installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. We hope you have enjoyed listening to all the things that we hate about the Star Wars prequels. And if you feel like any of our fixes would have had you screaming, it's working, it's working, then our work here is complete. For Dan, Josh, and Gabe, I want to thank you all for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. We hope you all have enjoyed yourself and will join us next time on Dorkfest, the podcast. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. What happened to him? 
he became so powerful, the only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. Unfortunately, he's taught his apprentice everything he knew. Then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. Ironic. He could save others from death, but not himself. Is it possible to learn this power? Not from a Jedi. <laughs>